Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, here in the CSIS studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever time of day it is you're choosing to listen to Russian Roulette. And we thank you for listening to Russian Roulette at all times of day. Um, so this is an episode in which we sit down with uh, Maxim Trudalubov. Uh, Max is a senior fellow with the Kennet Institute, where he runs the Russiafile blog. He uh, has been an editor for many years with Vedomisti, the independent newspaper, where he remains editor-at-large, a contributing opinion writer for the International New York Times, and a host of other jobs in journalism and uh, and elsewhere um, throughout his career. He's he's really he's really done a lot, which means we were actually able to talk to Max about the gamut of uh, of topics. Yeah, he's really something of a renaissance man and you'll get a, a little flavor of that from our conversation. Everything from how you make uh Russian authors and commentators accessible to an English language audience, which is what the Russia File blog does. It takes Russian writings, makes them English, and makes them actually understandable to people reading in English. We talk about Stalinism. Uh, we talk about the Orthodox Church and how its role uh, has evolved. We talk about journalism and how its role has evolved. We talk about his coming book on private property. Anyway, we're going to stop talking about what we're going to talk about and let you listen to the conversation. So, Maxim, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. But we might start off with um, you talking a little bit about the Russia File blog, which you've been uh, running at, for the Kennan Institute of the Woodrow Wilson Center for how long now? More than two years. More now. than two years. So, can you talk a little bit about the blog and what its goals are and what you think it's achieving? Um, we've been trying to bring some Russian perspective uh, translated mm -hmm. into English and. Uh, adequately, but at the same time, keep the voice of uh, the Russian academics mm -hmm. and uh, writers who are not sometimes are not uh, the kind of produce the kind of things mm -hmm. that uh, you would expect. There are some counterintuitive things that uh, you come up with, and I, I also do understand that sometimes it might have some it met with some misunderstanding because. Uh, Russian perspective, uh, especially written and said by people who live and work mm -hmm. in Russia, is really, I mean, it sounds different. Its, mm -hmm. uh, its nature is very, very different mm -hmm. to, to, to how uh, American audiences... Uh, how, can you are, talk a little bit about how the, what the reception has been, like how um, American audiences have responded? Uh, actually, uh, news outlets are picking this up, which mm -hmm. was interesting and uh, almost unexpected for us. So there is a certain, uh, it, it's, it's kind of amplified. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure it's to, it, it remains kind of a niche thing, but uh, uh, it's interesting that you actually can bring this and uh, uh, some professional media people appreciate it at least to the extent that uh, you know they mm -hmm. they pick it up and uh, they they know they use it uh, you know to uh, to fill some space on their um, resources and uh, you know for free so it's it's okay but um, uh, yeah and despite the the, the difference mm -hmm. this is something I, I I'm, I'm always conscious about too. when I write in English obviously I've, uh, I'm Russian grew up in Russia my English is 
uh, a learned lang language that I've never really used in, in, in real life. So um, when you translate it, you are always conscious of, of how Russians think, mm -hmm. think differently, they write mm -hmm. differently. Uh -huh. So let's talk about that. What, how do you, what are some examples of the way that Russians think differently and write differently that might not translate easily to English reading, hearing audiences? Yeah, there are different narratives, mm -hmm. uh, different habits of thought, um, different structure. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's impossible to translate literally. Uh, it, it just can you falls, give an example? Falls apart. Well, I mean, if you take uh, some writers that are really popular in Russia, I don't know, pick uh, Alek Kashin, Alexander mm -hmm. Morozov, um, and and you literally translate mm -hmm. it. It probably would be incom incomprehensible mm. uh, because it's very um, vernacular, so to, to, okay. so, so to speak. It's it's kind of very very absorbed in the day to day uh, discussions on, on very often on social media. Uh, so it assumes of, knowledge. Yeah, it, it assumes a lot. It is, mm. and it's, it's also Russian uh, kind of way of doing uh, explaining things is not. The strongest uh, point. So, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, there is a tendency I found that uh, of if you want something to be, I mean, Americans do this too, but if you want something to be true, you just assert it as fact. And I think in Russian, Russian writers, American writers do this also, but I think Russian writers are likely to not just assert it as fact, but also perhaps refer to it as a thing that everybody knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in mm -hmm. in Russian case, it's it's very very strong. It's mm -hmm. uh, because people rely on uh, being part of a continuous uh, discussion. And uh, actually, something also that's interesting that I realized that sometimes happens is that if uh, a, a person, a writer from from Russia, quotes uh, some official sources and and tries to explain the uh, the Kremlin position, position of people close to the Kremlin, it actually is is very popular. You see that people are reading this because they're trying to understand. They're trying uh, to read between the lines. But also to, to understand whenever you see someone trying to explain, like recently we had a piece uh, uh, by an academic from uh, the city of Tomsk okay. uh, and trying to explain uh, Russia's elites, uh, the Kremlin's changed attitude toward the Russian Revolution, mm -hmm. the narrative, mm -hmm. the, how they, they now try to package for yeah. uh, Russian society. And it was like a popular what piece. Is what is the answer on the Russian Revolution these days? I think I've lost track. Was it good or bad? Um, it's bad. It's bad now. Yes, it, it, okay. it's bad. It was and good for a little while again. Yeah, yeah yes. it was good for 74 years. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> no, I meant more recently. I meant <laughs> I, a lot. And over the last 25, uh, there's still... Uh, and there's, Then it was uncertain. Then it was uncertain. And there's still and, the nostalgia for Stalin, right? And yes. you get well, that. Well, but that's the sort of post-revolution. That's kind of different. And, mm -hmm. and again, uh, this is really paradoxical because nostalgia for Stalin... Uh, I mean, Stalin was a Soviet leader. Mm. Uh, he was a revolutionary. Who, yeah, and he was a and he succeeded a revolutionary state uh, from Lenin, who was a revolutionary. And uh, Stalin himself was a revolutionary. Uh, but in in Russia's folklore, sort of mm -hmm. sort of political uh, narrative of mm. today, Stalin is a, a as a statesman, as a respected statesman, whereas. Uh, Lenin is uh, a disruptor, some, right. somebody who disrupted the right. uh, right. the political order of the day, and and that's that's why criminal. Mm -hmm. 
And Stalin participated in that too, right? He absolutely, was very abso- much part absolutely. Of but still, Stalin is a positive figure for the official view. It's kind of complicated, but still, it is. Uh, it's kind of in the official above, view? above the water. In yeah, the official, in the official view, Stalin view. is. You see, the important thing, the official view, uh, if we, we try and glean it from something called the Russian Historical Society, which is very close to Putin, sort of people around Putin mm-hmm. who uh, do this. And their basic point is that. <clears throat> The failure uh, of uh, the ruling class uh, during the 1917 Russian Revolution was because the ruling class, the elites, broke up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a really important point in the issue. Uh, Raskol elite, the br- the breakup. The schism the, within the elites. Yeah, yeah, the schism within uh, the elites. And uh, they constantly sort of uh, they continue to speak about it that this is what was criminal about this was so bad about and mm-hmm. this is what uh, this is something that should never ever be repeated i was noticing just reading your bio that um you worked in the synod library of the of the russian yeah, orthodox it was church much first um but that is kind of how stalin is somebody who of course persecuted the russian orthodox church quite mercilessly has nevertheless been woven back into this patriotic narrative as exactly. parallel with the church. And Even supported by, and supported uh, by, the uh, by uh, official, uh, some of the official church leaders, which yeah. is really hard to understand. And yet, if you look at it carefully, like uh, very briefly, the story is this. Uh, Stalin uh, of the war period, mm-hmm. uh, mid-40s, uh, 1943 to be exact, he summoned the three high-ranking bishops of the time uh, to the Kremlin. Uh, As always, it's been done like secretly and very fast. And um, he told them uh, that he was prepared to reopen some of the churches, some of the seminaries, Mm -hmm. and kind of include the church more openly in uh, the life of uh, Russian society. And uh, for them, it was an incredible change like at the time and uh, they were allowed to do to to convene a congress a, uh, what's called uh, the local council pamiesny mm. sabor which um, was the first since 1917 and of course it was completely under the then KGB right. uh, control and yet for the church it's so important so if you if you look at this from the perspective of let's say Eastern Europe of the early nineties, and say that uh, you know this is a clear case of collaboration. This is a an institution that under the control of the political police was producing some you know re, re, was rebuilt essentially institutionally under the control of um, both the government and secret police which was essentially overseeing the entire process. And now the documents are published. You can look at it and see. Uh, But this has zero resonance in Russia. It's completely, it's a non-event, non-issue. It's not interesting, not important. This this should tell you something. Because for for the majority of the the Russian public, uh, the church is, uh, is, is an important... Uh, institution uh, that I mean that provides miracles, for example, which is kind of really important, and uh, and um, you know gives 
some hope in, in life and the people are ready to go and stand in line for uh, to visit the church if they bring some relic from a different uh, country from the let's say Mount Athan, mm-hmm. uh, Athos uh, in, Gre- mm-hmm. in Greece and people would uh, you know it's it's kind of really difficult to explain I'm sure to a foreign audience uh, let alone uh, you know in, in the United States where you have kind of a living uh, beliefs uh, people are uh, religion is kind of still an existent phenomenon as opposed to Europe uh but in russia it's 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 a born again mm-hmm. uh, uh situation uh faith is important but somehow it does include stalin as a figure who was bringing faith back into russia's life under the soviet regime and that's why stalin is more respected than khrushchev khrushchev when he came back, uh, when he uh, succeeded stalin in uh, uh in mid 50s uh he initiated a very, very uh, harsh, mm-hmm. tough campaign of uh, repression against uh, the church, and that's why uh, the church, kind of the the, the church within, the, the, mm-hmm. they they do kind of, in a way, respect Stalin and hate Khrushchev. And how would you describe the role of the church today? I mean, we, you started to talk about this a little bit, and I think it's, I think it's an interesting question because it's something that. Analysts, Russian and American, are trying to get their minds around extent to which the government uses the church. The church uses the government. Uh, you have the born certainly you have the born again um, phenomenon, but it's hard to measure the actual religiosity of the average Russian. What's your take well, on this? It's hard to measure the average religiosity of anybody. I mean, you can sure. measure how often people go to church. You can measure, you know, how many times they have, you know people over for Easter dinner, but you know, what is it you're actually sure. measuring? Absolutely. True, uh, absolutely. Uh, but what's your take yeah, on yeah, the but, relationship? Uh, I mean, there are all these polls that tell us that uh, uh, the majority of the Russian uh, population identifies yeah. as uh, Orthodox. Orthodox, Orthodox Christian. Mm-hmm. At the same time, people who actually go to church, mm-hmm. uh, it's a ridiculously low uh, fraction of, yeah. of that. Uh, and I mean, there are all kinds of uh, fun uh, facts about it, like people who, are, there are a lot more people who identify as Orthodox who actually believe in God. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of people who don't believe in God and, and still. Right. Uh, it's identify. like a, a tribal marker. Yeah, it's, yeah it's identity, uh, apparently. Um, and uh, also, I mean, relics are a popular phenon- phenomenon, mm-hmm. which is, again, tri- uh, kind of strange and difficult mm-hmm. to understand, and um, including for a person like myself who spent uh, my youth in, in the church, and I was a typical young, uh, kind of born-again uh, young person back in the late 80s, actually, um, uh, very early 90s. Uh, at, the, at, at that time, it was a lot more, I would say, civilized in a way mm-hmm. and kind of uh, enlightened in a way because we read books. <laughs> and um, people, uh, let's say even from American Orthodox uh, figures from uh, from the American Orthodox Church were very popular, like uh, Father Alexander Schmemann, mm-hmm. whose uh, books are still read. But at the same time, they were sort of the guide uh, for many who tried to learn about uh, the faith uh, of their fathers. And then it was kind of superseded and flooded with the new, new and kind of more popular and less of a, 
less of a refined uh, kind of uh, product uh, that by now is is a basically in, in a way it's a kind of shallow uh, popular phenomenon mm-hmm. with people basically uh, you know trying to find some way of it's unfortunately it's it's not particularly Christian I would mm-hmm. uh, I would have to admit that it's it, it's more of a kind of a really popular mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, uh, you know, a, a phenomenon that's not uh, telling you much about what people really think about as in terms of faith. They more they, they rather think mm-hmm. it apparently in terms of, you know, luck, mm-hmm. uh, superstition, superstition. Yeah. And the role of the government in this. Oh yeah, a church and government. Obviously, uh, I mean, first uh, historically, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church has never ever been. Uh, the kind of church that uh, the Catholic Church is, or all kinds of independent congregations. Right. It's never been outside of yeah, the uh, of the state. independent congregations right. in in this country or in many other countries. Um, it has always been in in a very deep uh, relationship with um, with various kinds of uh, power that Russia had. The, the Catholic Church historically in Europe had a very close relationship. Yes, but, well, the, but the, I mean the, the nature Catholic church in Europe often stood above the state. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I mean the nature of the relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean it's not to say that it's worse or, or better or, right, or worse is is different. Yeah. It, it's it's always been like the church has had because it it had to um, it had things to expect from power and uh, it needed you know property and it needed um, protection and things. Uh, and also, we never had this um, uh, situation where you would have two competing faiths mm-hmm. uh, that would be sufficiently, uh, you know, comparable in size, uh, you know, to fight between each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, on the one hand, this is the reason why Russia didn't really have, uh, you know, the wars, of, wars, of wars of religion mm-hmm. that Europe had. But on the other hand, it means that uh, the church has always remained kind of subordinate and mm-hmm. uh, especially during the uh, the St Petersburg period of the Russian history uh, up until 1917 and ironically the church became free and restored uh, the independence in terms of uh, and restored uh, the figure of the patriarch of the church in 1917 but again like in a, in literally a, f- a few months mm-hmm. uh, was again under uh, a very heavy uh, pressure from uh, from government, and but to to conclude, the the post Soviet situation basically is that uh, the church uh, thinks of itself as a as a kind of an independent entity. They okay. themselves think that. At the same time, they need uh, they need churches. They need right. their finances. They need um, protection from um, competition. And they always come to uh, the government, the state, uh, mm. for, for, for all of these things. And the government, of course, needs tr- the church. Um, uh, the Kremlin, the government, the current government, is very sensitive to uh, things like uh, audiences. The church commands, in the view of the Kremlin, commands an enormous following, mm-hmm. however shallow, uh, I mean, in, the, in terms of, I mean, the depths of people's actual faith. But uh, this means that the Patrick, uh, Patrick Kirill mm-hmm. is a very important and, and interesting figure in the eyes of the Kremlin because he commands millions and millions of 
of uh, people who have his attention. That's why the relationship. That's why it's it's kind of mutual. It's uh, it's um, uh, it's. Um, it's kind of a marriage of convenience, mm-hmm. in a way. It's not. Codependency. I mean, yeah, codependency. I mean, uh, despite the constant talk of traditional values and things, the Kremlin is a pretty cynical and pragmatic mm-hmm. uh, uh, institution, and they only want things that they need, mm-hmm. and they need the Orthodox Church, not because they want really restore all some kind of traditional values. They're not interested in that really. But they need it as a as a conduit, as a as a as a vehicle for things that they need to you know keep people under right okay. control. Yeah. So, um, Grand Inquisitor. Yeah, exactly. After being a librarian uh, for the Synod Library, you became a journalist. Yeah. And you had a long career as a journalist in Russia, and you, you continue to be editor at large of Vedomosti, uh, the Independent Daily. Can you talk a little bit about how you saw journalism change in Russia over the time you've been working? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting story. I, I don't think it's it's actually it, it's still an unwritten story. I think uh, we were very very uh, passionate about in introducing new uh, a new kind of journalism in the nineties, uh, prove trying to prove essentially that you can do uh, unbiased mm-hmm. reporting, basically very simple things mm-hmm. like that you can report a business news. Uh, talking to all sides and mm-hmm. uh, also independent uh, uh, experts, and basically tell a story from uh, pr- produce something that's not influenced by uh, any of the parties involved. Which which does sound weird, but uh, in Russia, this kind of journalism was not, was not mm-hmm. um, it was unheard of basically, yeah. and uh, this was uh, the major one probably the. Priority one uh, for Vedomosti when it was created in um, 1999 and started uh, publishing basically simultaneously with Vladimir Putin, uh, appointed prime minister and then uh, selected, elected or selected um, mm-hmm. uh, president in uh, January um, 2000. Mm-hmm. So uh, Vedomosti has existed uh, uh, sort of and developed together with uh, Vladimir Putin's political uh, mm-hmm. or his presidential um, career, and uh, so it started as a as a kind of a in, uh, a, a very um, uh, involved, interesting experience for us, for all of us who are in, in involved in um, launching uh, the newspaper, and uh, I think uh, it kind of succeeded in a way in. In in getting the word uh, across and telling the, this message of of independent, uh, unbiased mm-hmm. reporting, and also distinguishing between fact and opinion, and very early in in Vedmist's development, I became editor of the editorial mm-hmm. page, and we were doing the editorials and uh, uh, op-eds, and that was kind of also a kind of a novel thing. Despite the Russian journalism has uh, always been. Very opinionated, mm-hmm. so there was a lot of opinion in it. But uh, you know, deliberately wall it off. Yeah, yeah, right. just uh, distinguishing it and telling that this is actually an opinion was kind of uh, funny. Something uh, we're having trouble with here in the United States right now. Exactly. Yeah. Now it's so funny looking at things happening. And yeah, yeah. So basically, and it was and um, and Vedmosti for a time, I believe, uh, became an important platform for 
uh, for, I hope, an enlightened kind of informed uh, debate on uh, policy issues in, in Russia. And it was read, it is still actually, mm-hmm. read by most of the Kremlin leadership and uh, uh, big businesses and um, deputies, uh, the, the parliament. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, it kind of succeeded, and and many others appeared who who started doing similar things. Actually, the standards for for reporting are still they're still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is this is in a way. I mean, could could be. So you so, but what overall has happened? Can you but what what's, what has bit? changed is is what's changed basically. Because of, of an ill-conceived, uh, I believe, very harmful legislation enacted uh, two or three years ago, uh, all media that was owned by uh, all uh, all foreign entities, companies who owned media, had to divest, sell, right. sell. And uh, Vietnamese used to be owned by Dow Jones and Pearson, the mm-hmm. owners of the Financial Times mm-hmm. in London. And uh, and it was actually a, an incredibly um, fantastic partnership for the editorial because both these companies that never do things together uh, were never, ever interested in the editorial line of the mm-hmm. newspaper. They, uh, they were actually only interested in figures, of, in, in, in numbers, in, in uh, it's in a, is a business. And it was a, a small but successful business. And when they sold... Despite the fact that now we have a, a, a we have no, no longer an editor, so I'm kind of just a contributing writer for uh, for the newspaper. But um, the new shareholder, he doesn't do bad things, mm-hmm. but uh, and he's trying to curate and keep. Uh, but um, just because the their the shareholder and some new people that. Uh, are working now. They are simply because of the sheer fact of being Russian and close to the process. They kind of they kind of become involved a, a lot more than uh, it used to be. So, so sort of like self censorship. Yeah, a lot of this and uh, also different interests. Mm-hmm. And you you can see that. So basically, nothing terrible happened, but it's uh, it's be- it's becoming just dull mm-hmm. and uh, and inefficient in in terms of and and a lot less influential. I would say. And would you say that that's true kind of across the media landscape in Russia? Yes. Uh, in uh, Mostly I would say that um, the kind of renaissance we had of um, of independent journalism, uh, we, we had a certain period, I think, of, of a very real enthusiasm for mm-hmm. good journalism in Russia. I would say during the second half of 2000s and probably early 2010s and and now it's it's just dull it's just you don't care and mm-hmm. uh if you if you imagine that somebody was trying to buy a newspaper uh back two two three years ago keeping uh in mind that uh we, we have we're gonna have elections in uh 2018 as always in russia you think that uh the kremlin would be interested in in uh you know buying this to use it mm-hmm. as a vehicle, and it just doesn't happen because the Kremlin is not interested. They realize that uh, that this kind of um, audience uh, that still reads these good, um, let's say, quality press uh, outlets in Russia, this audience is so tiny mm-hmm. and negligible that you know, you know, you can do it. Nobody interested. 
This is what, what what's changed. And what do you sort think? Sort of postmodern authoritarianism, right? Exactly. Like you don't have it, to exactly break Absolutely. heads. You just have to make the people who have yeah, yeah. You can publish. I mean, you can, you can publish whatever you like in Russia. I mean, okay, let's not overstate this. You cannot publish all everything sure, you right. let's, mm-hmm. uh, everything, but uh, the kind of uh, the the control the 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 very literal control over what you can say publicly in Russia is limited to uh, to a, a rather narrow uh, number of things mm-hmm. uh, outside of the kind of extremism what they term extremism and. Right. Uh, um, You're talking about the president's family, or yeah. This is kind of informal again. Or, yeah. So there, there is censorship, mm-hmm. but it's very limited, and you can live with it. Most of the world lives w- lives with it. Uh, most of the non-Western world, let's say, uh, lives with it. But the thing is that uh, you know, it's just you can say a lot of things, but it just doesn't reach the the point of uh, resonance and okay. importance. So, what looking looking forward, um, and also looking at how media is evolving in the West with social social media aspects, the blurring of lines between fact and opinion. What's your prognosis for the Russian media landscape? Well, uh, good question. I, I you see, uh, it really would depend on Russia's uh, economic development. Right now, if if you look at it. They're striking. Uh, this one, uh, this one big thing that's striking. Russia, uh, Russia's assets are undervalued, incre- incredibly undervalued. Russia's companies, uh, um, I don't know, real estate, everything, and um, compared to the Western world, and also Russia missed uh, big time on the kind of upsurge uh, of an economic kind of uplift of the past two or three years. Completely missed out because. Not just because of the sanctions, uh, mostly because of the oil prices. But um, uh, so Russia potentially, Russia has a huge potential, economic potential, just purely economic potential from a purely purely pragmatic sense. And I uh, actually, this is something I don't understand about the Kremlin because if they just worked a little bit on uh, on uh, guarantees for investors, on uh, Working with uh, people who understand how to make sure that uh, you know it's it's all it's it's not rocket science. It's like really really doable, mm-hmm. um, and just you know help people invest and uh, develop their private businesses. Russia would you know uh, would experience an an extreme economic boom, very uh, very fast, and and it would be a fantastic situation. But they don't do it okay. for reasons that I don't quite. Understand. So, if something like that happens, and somebody realizes that this is the opportunity that you could use, things like Vedomosti and others, media, independent media, they would be uh, again uh, in demand, and this will help develop media because mm-hmm. right now media is just one part of, of what's going on. A depressed, kind of sleepy uh, political and economic uh, situation that Russia is going through uh, because. Politically, basically, and this is strategy. Actually, mm-hmm. this is Putin's. This is Putin. Uh, he doesn't want things to happen, basically, because he doesn't want bad things to happen, but also good things. Because you know, this is kind of in mm-hmm. changes. Yeah, it it it's, it's kind of you don't. Otherwise, you know, you you get into a kind of territory where you have uh, un, uh, unpredictable right. change. Mm-hmm. 
So do you think in the context of social media, of all, all of these new developments, that's how it is simply a matter of that if, if things free up, then print media in Russia will have space to grow? I mean, it's it's very much in trouble in the West. True, uh, totally. But uh, Russia's uh, online and all kinds of media that are not print media are uh, have a huge potential too, and they are developed. I mean, from technical point, from the expertise point, uh, we now have a, a robust bunch of uh, new, uh, trendy kind of media mm -hmm. that are very, very similar to what you have here. Let's say Axios, mm -hmm. which I read uh, about. Uh, it's kind of my one of my uh, favorite uh, here in this country, and we have a very similar thing now in, in Russia. Mm -hmm that's uh, created by a former colleague of mine, by the way. And uh, they basically took this model and, uh, and now are okay. doing it. It's called The Bell. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of a play on Hertzen's right. uh, yeah. yeah. Colical mm -hmm. The Bell. Uh, and they've broken some of the stories about exactly. uh, the Russian election interference. Yeah, in they're very independent, very well reported. Mm -hmm. They're a very small group of journalists who are doing it. And so it's kind of incredibly inefficient. Uh, and uh, so whenever you have uh, space, some room for development, mm -hmm. there are people in Russia who would do a, mm -hmm. a very, very good, uh, efficient product. You just, you know, let them work, let them yeah. do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing we've discovered in the West, too, is that there are people who are willing to pay for quality journalism. The trick is just the model is shifting, right? You know, you've seen this like with the Washington Post, which has become much more profitable but also much better in recent years. Um, but it's just kind of the old online model of just kind of putting content out there and you know, trying to maximize numbers at the expense of, of being profitable is I think probably not sustainable and we're kind of in this transition period now. So one of the other things this brings up is uh, the question of property rights and economic shifts and you know who who owns uh, who owns media but who owns everything else everything else and you've written on this you actually have uh, you've written on private property in Russia a book that's going to be out in English i think in, English in just a few year. months uh -huh. um, can you talk a little bit about that yeah uh, you see uh, the the situation with private property in Russia is kind of important because it's it's one of the things that uh, distinguishes uh, Russia institutionally from uh, the rest of Europe, mm -hmm. um, uh, the rest of the West, because I think Russia is, in a certain way, is the West. Uh, but sure. in in some, it's Europe. Uh, in some, yeah, in some aspects, it's not. Right. And, well, and yeah, and if you ascribe to a Whiggish view of history, right, that it's creating property owners that actually creates a foundation for demo for democracy. And so if you don't have this group of people with a stake in sort of the preservation of their property rights, it's much harder to build a kind of liberal democratic Which is one order. hypothesis, which is yeah. Yeah, not everyone believes. Yeah. Uh, so if you ascribe to a Whiggish... So if we... Yeah, uh, totally. If we... Uh, even accept or not accept this uh, theory of uh, of how you develop, you know, this kind of institutional approach. Um, but still, it's striking that Russia almost never had a class of really independent owners, landowners, mm -hmm. and other uh, merchants who would uh, be completely independent and would be able to defend their 
uh, you know, their position, mm-hmm. their possessions uh, against the central government. They would always work in uh, with the government or, mm-hmm. let's say, more uh, uh, under uh, right. the central authority and, and, and expect, you know, the protection and the, uh, you know, the expansion from... Uh, their relationships, uh, various kinds of relationships with the central authority. And, and it's no different now. So basically, in a way, we're back uh, to a situation that in many respects would resemble uh, pre- pre-revolutionary uh, Russia, probably mm-hmm. the Russia of uh, the later uh, part of the 19th century, early 20th century, where where you you do have uh, private owners, you do have a, 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 a developing economy, which was actually developing very mm-hmm. fast and uh, uh, was putting Russia on 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 track to be uh, an important um, force in global economy of of the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, uh, today's Russia still has this uh, this major major. Uh, uh, drawback, I think, of having a, a class of very wealthy individuals who only look up to the Tsar mm-hmm. uh, to do things, not never look down on him, or, or let's say on the on the on an equal footing with with the Tsar, with uh, mm-hmm. with the government. They they're always always kind of uh, they're essentially they're appointed. And this is how Putin calls them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and not only are they appointed, appointed their, managers. Yeah, mm-hmm. not only are they appointed to their positions, but to get to the question of property, their property rights are contingent on maintaining the good graces of the Tsar. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one example. I mean, there are many examples. They're, they're, they, uh, many of them said publicly at, dif- at the various points in, in their careers. Uh, probably, it was part of their kind of way, a way to communicate their loyalty. Uh, that they would uh, be uh, prepared to, uh, you know, uh, return uh, their assets mm-hmm. uh, to the government. Oleg Deripaska was one right. uh, mm-hmm. who said that uh, some years ago, more than 10 years ago, actually, in, in an interview with the Financial Times, that uh, he does not distinguish between mm-hmm. right. uh, the state and private ownership in his assets. Uh, so mm, this is, and many others did that too. So... Um, this is a, a very important distinctive kind of feature of uh, Russia's institutional uh, universe. It's it's like this. You own things, but you don't really own it. You're kind of, it's kind of a lifetime uh, proposition. Mm-hmm. And when uh, your relationship with the power uh, of the time ends, then it's subject to, right. to reassessment and probably it could be redone. Mm-hmm. And... Um the other thing uh, in the context of private property, um, something we were talking about a little bit before we started recording, is the renovations in Moscow. Oh, yeah. Uh, which it's interesting. We've talked about them on the podcast before that over the last few years, Moscow has become something of a model for urban planning in many, in many ways. Uh, well, there's, whether a good model or – No, a good model, model in the sense that they've gotten cars off the street by limiting parking, but they've increased bike share and other ways for people to commute. Traffic is better. It's not solved, it's, but it's better. Yeah. Um, gen, you know, Generally, streets are cleared of snow and ice and so forth. Uh, absent huge snowfalls. Um, and you have a lot of really nice public areas with benches that 
people make use of. Um, but on the other hand, people living in particularly not so fashionable parts of Moscow are being evicted from their right. uh, apartments and having the buildings torn down so that they can be redeveloped, so presumably think- – to the profit of somebody so how, else. So how does the property question play in to this, yeah. this story? So this is interesting. Uh, uh, Moscow has indeed changed dramatically. I mean, myself, I grew up in Moscow. And I grew up in in, in one of those f- sort of outskirts kind of districts, mm-hmm. on, on not in the very center. For me, this, the center has always been kind of a, a different place. It's yeah. kind of you come from your believe or uh, mm-hmm. uh, to see the building, you know, the beautiful uh, central parts of Moscow. And now these central parts of Moscow, they, uh, they've completely, they've received a new lease of life. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's ba- it basically does look, especially when you now, like when I travel and I come back, I see, wow, it's kind of really, really impressive. Mm-hmm. You have, I mean, I don't think Moscow ever looked as uh, sexy as it does now in a way because mm-hmm. you have all these uh, really trendy cafes. Yeah. Sometimes you, you're in there and you don't know where uh, where you are. It could be uh, it could be New York. Yeah. It could be Berlin. There's good microbreweries in Moscow now. Exactly. And, but on the other hand, you cannot uh, forget that um, this is a kind of a – you know, an exhibition of your achievements in mm-hmm. a way. Sure. Uh, you know, Vaden Ha is the, uh, yeah, exactly. the, the Stalinist <laughs> uh, project that was supposed to showcase um, the Soviet achievements uh, in various, uh, you know, branches of uh, the economy. And this is what it, it's been created for. And actually, uh, Sergei Sabyanin, who is mm-hmm. a very able uh, manager and Moscow mayor, uh, he said this a uh, few times, actually, that um, his project, uh, apart from just you know doing good for the city, is to prevent people from leaving, mm-hmm. uh, because it creates an environment where uh, the um, uh, sort of the the trendy, the fashionable. Um, uh, people who 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 hate Putin and uh, all the kind of Russia's uh, all, and Russia's um, and Russia's backwardness can enjoy uh, a lifestyle that is uh, a lot closer, a lot uh, you know, to their liking, and sure. uh, uh, and it is actually to to a certain extent, it's true. It's it's a bit expensive and. Uh, uh, it's expensive in Berlin and New York also. Yeah, true. So, uh, but again, it's mostly limited to the Garden Ring. Garden Ring is yeah. a, it's uh-huh. a circle road that surrounds the, the central Moscow. Uh, so within, these, uh, within this area, you have uh, a kind of a new built environment that uh, signifies Russia's modernity, it's a new, new Russian modernity, which is very, very impressive. Uh, but you cannot forget that Moscow is... Uh, and in um, a phenomenon of sorts uh, in Russia, Moscow is uh, the richest uh, place, uh, a concentration point of everything. Yeah. It's both both a, an economic and a political capital. It's and got what something I think more than ten percent of the total Russian population lives. Right, there. and it's growing. And uh, let's say if you if you take uh, Russia's domestic migration, Moscow attracts more than half of all migration yeah. within mm-hmm. Russia. Uh, St. Petersburg mm-hmm. takes a little bit of that too and a few other cities. Yeah. 
just three three or four and this is this is it so russia as as a as a place it's it's it works like you know moscow works like a magnet mm-hmm. uh for everyone and greater moscow yeah uh and people who come i mean they they rate they rent rent an, an apartment that would uh, you know two hours uh commute from uh-huh. the center of moscow they drive then they park their car uh at the nearest metro station and then take another hour mm-hmm. to get to moscow center because most of the jobs are in the center sure. yeah that sounds like washington yeah well it sounds like a lot of cities yeah well yeah, washington two especially. hours two hours i think two hour commute in one way uh, uh two hours in the morning two hour two hours and then it's very real i'm not exaggerating i know i mean i i completely anecdotally i certainly know people who do this here in washington yeah. two hours yeah wow then i mean we are very similarly yeah, the, they, are, they drive to the metro yeah, and then they yeah. get on the train yeah i mean then that's that's that means that uh, moscow is a, is a very very kind of uh, international uh phenomenon but very different from the rest of the country mm-hmm. very yeah. and the property rights and oh yeah uh, i kind of missed it yeah sorry yeah. uh so basically you see what 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 happened because moscow is so uh, so wealthy and also now has for the past five or so more than five years this um very energetic mayor mm-hmm. uh um that uh, he initiated this major program of urban improvements and that since last year includes uh includes the these five story buildings built mm-hmm. under the soviets the so called khrushchevki mm-hmm. the uh the first wave of uh, prefabricated mm-hmm. um housing and uh so they're demolishing it and uh they're giving people apartments instead of those that they used to own mm-hmm. and the, the paradox is that people do own apartments in Russia but they don't own the land and uh basically the municipality re- decides uh what to do and they decided and they basically demolish they actually had a, in moscow they had a um a, a pole of sorts it wasn't really a um a, a plebiscite really but it was kind of a pole and uh, they asked uh, whether people wanted it in the, yes of course they wanted it uh like 90% majority and and the issue of property rights didn't even enter the discussion because obviously if you are offered so essentially i think i'm i i think about it in terms of you know you have the social right which is mm-hmm. uh which is something very um modern very mm-hmm. 20th century uh, social right to to your housing uh but your right to your private property doesn't even enter the picture it's mm-hmm. it's kind of superseded by the ability of this particular region which is mm-hmm. very wealthy to give you something uh they don't take it and give you and compensate and uh tell you to buy something mm-hmm. they basically demolish the take it from you mm-hmm. demolish the building build another building and give you an apartment in it and also uh, a lot of um commercial property was destroyed in mm-hmm. moscow because mm-hmm. during this clean up right of the kiosks uh, uh, yeah campaign right. again many of these kiosks were uh, and these were just so that our listeners who may not be familiar with sure. this know these were 
I mean, they were literally kiosks, but some sometimes in undergrounds and underpasses, mm-hmm. metros, sometimes, some, on the sometimes out on the streets, selling everything from pantyhose to bread to and batteries. Yeah, to yeah, some to of them the, uglier than the others, but mostly ugly. Yeah. So there's no question uh, that Moscow now looks better mm-hmm. without them. But again, most of them were privately owned. Right. And, they were owned and by people, Somebody yeah. owned them. And, and people had uh, court, even mm-hmm. court rulings that, uh, that confirmed their right to own this mm-hmm. place. And despite that, it was just, you know, uh, ruined and never uh, compensated for. Mm-hmm. So this is basically, uh, the again, the paradox of uh, Russia's institutional uh, state. When... When there is a strong modernizing, I would uh, mm-hmm. uh, underline this. It's not a conservative government, especially in Moscow City, right? It's a it's a highly energetic modernizing force that wants to do things uh, properly and and kind of wants to develop mm-hmm. it, and modernize it. Mm-hmm. But the way it does it, the way it's doing it, uh, it's doing it in a very kind of Russian way, mm-hmm. uh, where the interests of particularly individuals, basically do not even, you know, come into consideration. Right. Right. Well, look, I mean, when you have lots of people, lots of property claims, it gets in the way, right? It's it's inefficient. If your goal is to maximize efficiency um, in the aim of development, those are obstacles. Now, for the people who are advancing those claims, of course, it's it's maybe a different story. But there's always been, I think, in every country that's gone through this process of, of urban renewal, this tension between the desire on the part of the people doing the urban renewing to be as effective and as efficient as possible, and the desire on the part of the people whose lives are being affected by it to, to have their rights protected and their and their property protected. Sure. So, uh, so in this sense, uh, we are again, uh, we're. It's it's very very not Soviet. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's one of the features of the yeah. new Russia that is resembles uh, Russia of the I would say early twentieth century. Uh, yeah. Or like Robert Moses's New York. Exactly, exactly. This is mm-hmm. a very good parallel. So, so Banyan is like uh-huh. is like Moses uh, in a way. Maxim, I thank you so much for joining us uh, and having this conversation. Yeah, thank, thank you. you for uh, inviting me. Thank you for having me. Okay, that is it for our show today. Thanks again for listening. Uh, there is a link to Max's publications in the show notes. And also to the Russia File blog so you can check it out yourself. If you haven't done so already, um, please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. And if you're the iTunes type, uh, leave us a rating and review. If you're not the iTunes type, uh, we are on Google Play and SoundCloud. And we also sporadically do a mailbag, and we're going to do one again here soon. So send us your questions to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. We do look forward to hearing from you. And yeah, we really, it's its time to do another mailbag. Um you can follow the program on Twitter, at CSIS Russia. You can follow either of us directly. I'm at Olya Oliker, and Jeff is at Dr. J. Mankoff. And By the way, did you guys know that the at in Russian is usually referred sabachka. to as a sabachka, which yes. means little dog? Yes. 
And uh, of course, as always, uh, a big shout out to everyone who works very hard to make sure that Russian Roulette comes out every two weeks. Uh, that includes our research assistant and program coordinator, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Claire Hafner, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Mm-hmm.